Wade is guarding Bryant. Artest looking, gets it to Bryant. Bryant dribbling, has to put it up at the buzzer. Banks it in! <laughs> he banks in the three! And the Lakers win the game! Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for listening to the best Houston sports podcast and joining me as my co-host Stephen Kerr dropping by is our correspondent and OG co-host RGCL plenty of Astros Texans Rockets news this past week and of course we'll get to the shocking and sudden passing of Kobe Bryant later in the show and if you just started listening to us we welcome you and let me start off with this guys because as we sit here recording Wednesday morning, USA Today's Bob Nightingale reporting that Dusty Baker will be named the Astros manager. But according to the Houston Chronicle, the deal hasn't been finalized. But let me ask you guys, because old Johnny B. Baker has a reputation as a fantastic leader. He's incredibly loyal. All, All that stuff is perfect for the Astros organization right now. But he's also known as a poor strategist who struggles in the postseason. And, RG, you, you kind of remember that from his history, right? I was going to say, first, get the toothpicks ready, because if Dusty Baker's going to be there, you're going to need a lot of them. But, <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, first of all, he's had a lot of success in his managerial career. And what the Astros and Jim Crane looking to do right here, initially on at least, he's starting this search, he, he you know, he said that, you know, he— it, it, you didn't have to have previous experience as as a manager, but we all know with the Astros cheating scandal, with everything that's going on, you know, to put a first time manager in that position where you can have to field all these questions. I mean, you just don't know how that would go. So, so Dusty Baker, remember he he managed Barry Bonds when he was going through the steroid scandal. Same thing with uh, Sammy Sosa. He's kind of been through the media circus before when everybody's following him around. So. You know, the first thing is you have to be able to to manage the clubhouse. You've got to be able to to shield your guys. We're going to get a lot of like boos and I'm going to get a lot of questions from reporters. And Dusty Baker is kind of the perfect guy for that. So he, you know, he definitely is somebody, somebody the Astros needed for that. As far as his managerial experience, look, you can also say just getting to the postseason is hard. Uh, we know that from uh, – today's baseball i mean there's so many teams i know they're they're the the additional wild cards now but i mean dusty baker's made it to the postseason everywhere he's been whether it's san francisco chicago cincinnati washington yes i mean he's had some strategy strategic mishaps uh you know he's not always been the best x's and o's guys in the postseason i mean but every manager you can look back remember i mean even buck showalter who the astros were looking at he didn't put zach Britton in and a lot of people think that you know buck showalter is a genius as far as maneuvering within game so the postseason you know he really wants to win he really has that desire to get that championship he's been to the world series he's a few outs away from it against the angels in 2002 with his giants so he has had success winning postseason series. It's been a while, but I think that for the Astros right now with the ball club that he has, that there's reason to be optimistic with Dusty Baker as manager. Yeah, I have to echo a lot of what you said, RG, and I'm, but I'm kind of lukewarm on the situation in regard to the Astros needing a calm, steady hand. I, that's probably first and foremost in Jim Crane's mind. I mean, he's come out and said that, that he wants somebody with experience. He wants somebody that's been through the ringer. You know, we may remember Dusty Baker managed the Giants when Barry Bonds was doing his thing and all the, the issues about steroids came out. So it, it's not completely uncharted territory for him. I mean, this particular situation may be. If you're looking at this, and, and at the time we're recording this, of course, it hasn't been officially announced. So we don't know terms of a deal, you know, while we're talking about this. If you're looking at it as a short-term deal, like let's say a two-year deal, for instance, as a transition period, then it makes sense because he does have experience, not just on the field with the pressures of the media. And, you know, let's face it, this is going to be a difficult season for the Astros, whether they win or lose. I mean, you know, especially off the field, the jeers, the boos, the heckling is going to come. The questions are going to come starting in spring training and all through the season. So if you're talking about getting the Astros through this transition period, Dusty Baker makes sense. Now, As you said, if you're talking about the analytics factor, the strategy factor, he does have some questions. And his playoff record is is barely 500. It's 23 and 22. But don't forget, the Astros still are are, he's inheriting still a very good Astros team. So really, you could point to any manager in the postseason. I mean, we question A.J. Hinch with 
the the whole exactly. Will Harris Garrett Cole thing. So I don't know how much that plays into it, but I just think that at the point where the Astros they don't have a general manager yet, and they're trying to get through this transition period, maybe Dusty Baker in Jim Crane's mind is the right person for this job right now. A year from now, two years from now, who knows? Well, that's it, too. I think that the timing of this, a, I mean, there's a, a whole confluence of factors here. But first of all, you have the cheating scan. You need to bring in somebody immediately who has experience. I mean, spring training is only a couple of weeks away. you got to bring in somebody who's been through this rodeo before, and, and Dusty Baker has been. But then what you said there, too, Stephen, I think that you know, looking at somebody like Dusty Baker, he's 70 years old, so he's not a long-term solution here. And they still do need to hire a GM. GM is eventually going to want to bring in his own guy. So, and you look right. at the Astros contract situation. Okay, we know George uh, Springer contract up at the end of this year. Will he have an extension or not? I mean, everybody's hoping that he does, but we don't know uh, if that's going to happen or not. But then you have Michael Brantley, you have Josh Reddick, you have Lance McCullers. I, I think believe also. Uh, contract situation comes up. Then in two years, of course, you have, uh, you know, Justin Verlander is back out on the market again. I, I believe Zach Greinke, you know, some of these others. So the only guys signed long term are Altuve and Bregman pretty much right now. And then you have Jordan Alvarez, guys like that. But you know, if you look at it, then you're looking at a short term situation where you want to win right now. You don't want to give up these years that you have these guys under contract. You have this large payroll and you're built to win. So who do you bring in? You bring in somebody again who has that managerial spirit, steady hand. And I don't think the Astros are totally people are worried. Oh, my gosh, they're bringing in this old school manager. Well, they they still have a front office, even though it's in transition right now, you know, and they don't have a GM that's heavily analytics oriented and. As far as I know, I don't know if Dusty Baker is going to remove the whole staff before. I'm sure he'll want to bring in one or two of his guys. But as long as Robbie always mentions, as long as Brent Strom is still there as pitching coach, and we (laughs) know how much he relies on analytics and is one of the best pitching coaches in the game. Yeah, I want to see how this staff is rounded out uh, in the next few days, too, and, and see if there's much transition there. Because we know with the Astros front office, they're still going to be supplying data. It's not like they're immediately going to go back to the Stone Age. It's not the Flintstones and the Jetsons here is what I'm trying to say. RG, were there, was there anybody on that list of managers that has floated around that you were high on? Well, if Bruce Bochy wanted to manage, that would be the first one. But he said right away that he wasn't going to. So then when I looked at the list, I mean, all the guys that were the experienced managers that uh, the Astros were looking at, whether it was Buck Showalter or Jeff Bannister or Dusty Baker, for the reasons I've just gone over before, not that I don't like a Joe Espada, but if you really want to start clean and you want to say, okay, let's move on, let's go forward with what Jim Crane said when he fired A.J. Hinch because of the scandal. Well, then how do you bring in a guy who's basically been his bench coach the last couple of seasons? It's kind of a hard sell to to say you're moving on, fresh slate, and you bring in the guy who's his bench coach. And so then you're looking at other first-time managers. Do you really want to put a first-time manager in this situation? Again, explaining this, it's just like Will Venable might be the next great manager. He might be a complete dud. We don't know his managerial career yet. He'll eventually get a job. You know, same thing, Eduardo Perez, some of the other names that were uh, banding about. So I think, you know, with John Gibbons and Jeff Bannister and Buck Showalter, they all had their pros and cons uh, and Dusty Baker's among that group. But I think that, you know, when you're looking for somebody who's at least had success managing, which Dusty Baker has in every stop, he's well respected in the game, can manage a clubhouse, steady, calm influence. I mean, that's, I think, why the Astros are going in this direction, if they can work out the contract. Well, we we thought that the Astros were not going to give up their rings this week, but we had one Astro that actually gave up a ring this week, and uh, I'm talking about Alex Bregman. He got engaged, guys. Uh, and I think we all know what that means, don't we? Uh, I'm officially – come on, RG, you know this. I'm officially now Houston's most eligible bachelor. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. You crap people's <laughs> list there, right? Something like that. <laughs> Get the magazine cover. Do even people look at that magazine anymore? I don't know. Or is it just all digitally online, right? Dallas Keuchel, actually, uh, he threw out a, an apology. Were you you guys surprised about that? No, I wasn't. I, I mean, Dallas Keuchel has never been shy about speaking his mind. And, of course, he doesn't have the restrictions that, uh, you know, that the Astros players do because he's not with the team anymore. So, you remember in 2017, uh, in July, when the Astros didn't make a, a trade or any kind of acquisition, really, Dallas Keuchel was front and center in expressing his views. So it didn't surprise me at all that that he made the apology, I guess, if you call it that. Um, 
but of course, you know, what does he have to lose really now that he's no longer with the team? Yeah, I think that that definitely kind of gives him a little bit more freedom to say what he wants to say. He's no longer inside that Astros clubhouse. He's at a distance up in Chicago where he signed a new contract, you know, so he can speak more freely about these things. So just like what Steven said, yeah, it was good to he apologized, and I'm sure that that's what a lot of people wanted to hear. They're going to Jim Crane has said when the Astros get to spring training, they're going to have an apology. They're going to address it. They're going to, you know, come out and make a statement about what happened. So it's not going to go away. This whole thing. There'll be questions throughout the season. Every visiting city the Astros go to get ready to wear black because the Astros are going to be the villains of baseball. But hey, sometimes. You know, teams embrace the the villain of of, of baseball or sports, and you know, end up uh, you know having a lot of success. So, uh, I mean, that's what the Astros are going to be outside of Houston. Well, one team that uh, also needs to apologize in Houston is the Rockets because it turns out when they try a little bit, they actually can play some defense and rebound and do all those kind of things. And they had the what the hell just happened win against the Jazz on Monday. I mean, if you had Eric Gordon scoring 50, the Rockets missing 14 free throws, and then beating the Jazz without Harden, Westbrook, or Capella, then I guess I should just take you to Vegas. Yeah, no doubt. You could, we could have won some money on that game because who would have picked? I mean, I wonder what the odds were. I, I don't you know, pay well, attention to betting that much. That for, for the you know the Rockets were going into that game with their disadvantaged lineup, just so if you just even just – cover so i i guess yeah. you were betting money line you know <laughs> yeah yeah we would have won some money but yeah that was such an unlikely win that yeah. uh I, you know and and of course now that they've done that you know what are they going to do the you know in, in some of the next few games it, it just they are so unpredictable that that's really been my knock on the rockets all year long from beginning to now is they are just a team that you cannot figure out you think we can't figure the texans out well the rockets they're right up there because when you think that they should roll over a team, you know, they have trouble against teams with 500 or worse records, they stub their toe. And against some of the better teams, they played some of their better games. So, yeah, the Rockets are just a very difficult team to figure out. And even at this point in the season, I, I still can't point to what they're going to do when the end of the regular season comes and the postseason begins. What was amazing about the Jazz game is how the Rockets – passed the ball around a lot. They played good fundamental defense. They stayed in front of their defender more than they usually do. They executed the details like boxing out their man. Gee, I, I wonder why they did all that in that game. Was it because maybe there was a couple of guys missing that have issues with doing some of those things? I, that's, that's, I mean, that's the stuff that bothers and frustrates and kind of angers Rockets fans is Arden Westbrook Guys, just stay in front of your just that that's all we're asking. Kind of stay in front of your guy if you can. Play play fundamentals, box out your man, that kind of thing. And, and and by the way, this is a lot more on Harden at this point because Westbrook's been playing fantastic now for a month and a half. I mean, right. I I've issued the formal apology, you know, I I've uh made a billboard up on uh 59 that says, "I'm sorry, Russ, I didn't mean." But he's been playing some great. He had another fantastic game over the weekend and you know russ has figured it out you know he's not taking three-point shots anymore uh, he's going to the basket he's either posting up or he's taking you know 12 footers instead of 18 footers which is it's that's all you want from russ is just just play some smart basketball and the other thing is you know he's running around there like a crazy guy and when he doesn't do when he doesn't score is it just my imagine when he doesn't score you're still getting effort. You're still getting energy from him. If James Harden's not scoring, it's like he's checked. He's in another world right now. He's checked out. Now that's that's a good point. And I've felt that way, really. You know, almost every season that Harden has been with the Rockets, it it just seems that things have to go 100% right for James Harden to be on. When they're not, I mean, we've seen it in the postseason. You know, how many times have we said that James Harden seemed to check out? You know, in in a postseason series. When he's not scoring, when the team's trailing by 10, 15, 20 points. But Russell Westbrook, you can tell that, you know, even when a shot isn't falling, he's still going after ball. He, he's still playing hard. And that is something that, you know, if Harden wants to win himself a championship, that's just one of the things that he's going to have to round into shape with. The other thing that it was huge this past week is Eric Gordon 
we took him off the milk carton. Uh, Eric Gordon showed up. He's shooting the ball again. Uh, and he just, like I said, he was incredible. The 50-point game against the Jazz. Also, Tabo Cephalosha. What happened to that guy Monday night? Looked like he had found the fountain of youth. Or He's doing behind the back and to, on his way to the basket. I mean, Cephalosha that just usually just stands there and takes about 40 seconds to release a three-point shot. If he does it all, he usually looks at the basket, scared half to death to shoot the ball. And there was just some sort of different confidence. I don't know. Maybe they said something to him. But if you can get more out of Cephalosha and and you can play him, you know, that that allows you to do a lot more things as far as resting people. And, I mean, this honestly, RG, this should have been a lesson to what happened with the Jazz is, you know, we, we talk about this all the time. I mean, to, so we're blue in the face. D'Antoni, you can actually sit guys down and rest them and not play them 40 minutes a game if you're a good coach. And look what happened. The Rockets, when they had effort from all the guys on the floor and they were playing defense and they were doing all the little things, you can actually sit down James Harden, Russell Westbrook and beat the Utah Jazz. I mean, that's what they showed the other night. To me, I'm looking at this big picture what are the Rockets going to do in the postseason? How is Daryl Moore? Is there going to be any tweaks to the roster here over the last month or two of the season? Because they're a bottom half team defensively. And usually teams that win championships are you know above the average defensively. And they have their moments where you look at them and like you said, both of you said they're inconsistent. Where they're really good defensively and then they're you know, they'll give up 40 plus points in a quarter. And you're where did that come from? You know, because they have defensive lapses. So you know, it gets back to like the postseason. I know with your, we talked a lot about Russell Westbrook and James Harden, and they're going to have to come up big. Yes, they are going to have to come up big. That's why I know like everybody's freaking out oh, about the seeding, who the Rockets matchup might be, but it's not going to matter. They're going to have to get through the Clippers and the Lakers. Those are the two best teams in the Western Conference. They're also very strong teams in the Jazz and the Nuggets. How healthy are the Rockets going to be? They're doing the load management thing this season, so they are giving up potential for Did they think that they were going to win that game against Utah? Did they think sitting James Harden and uh, that night that uh, they did against – I mean, he had an injury, but they're taking kind of the long-haul look here. So we have to remember, too, that they're also doing the load management thing this season. And so we'll see. Does this have a different effect in the playoffs as far as for – are there guys – more well-rested? Are they more effective in the playoffs? So again, I mean, there are a lot of things that still have to come out when everything begins April, May, and June. And that's when the real test is going to be. I mean, it's fun to talk about the regular season here and everything like that. You want the Rockets to have home court in the first round. I mean, that would be nice. But eventually, it's just going to get back to, okay, you've got to make it to the second round. You're going to be facing the Lakers or the Clippers. Uh, How are you going to beat them? Steven, the trade deadline is next Thursday. You know, Daryl Morey's wish list should be extremely obvious. They got to get some guys with size who can shoot threes because D'Antoni, he doesn't like Hartenstein enough to put him on the floor when Capella's not in the game. He hates not having five shooters on the floor. We've seen it over and over again. It's tiring to watch the Rockets get worked on defense and rebounding because nobody is bigger than six foot five. If it's a Robert Covington or a Markeith Morris or a Dario Saric, they got to get somebody with size that can shoot because. That's all Mike D'Antoni's going to put on the floor. It's like Bill O'Brien. You know he's going to screw up timeouts. You know he's going to screw up clock management. And you know that's going to happen. So you better do something really good when that's not going on. And that's what they need to do. Well, that's absolutely right. And that's you know really the, the thing that the Rockets lack is, is just somebody coming off the bench that can provide that spark that they need. And the one thing we do know about Dara Mori is that he won't do nothing. I mean, he, he's going to do something. Because he always pulls the trigger at the trade deadline, something, even if it's not something that, you know, the fans agree with. He is usually very aggressive and at least goes out and gets one player that he, they hope will make a difference. So I, I think it's it's not a question of is Daryl Morey going to do something? It's what is he going to do and who is he going to bring in? And Daryl Morey actually is a GM. Uh, the Texans, meanwhile, they got Cal McNair officially announcing former Patriots team chaplain Jack Easterby as executive VP of football operations, basically the Texans, Joel Osteen. And then Bill O'Brien is officially (laughs) the GM. Cal McNair also gave O'Brien the title to NRG stadium because why not? First of all, I need to call you, take you to task because this wasn't the lead story on our podcast. I mean, that's the biggest story this past week in Houston 
you know, next to everything else is going on. I can't believe that you didn't start this podcast. Bill O'Brien was named the general manager yeah, of the Texans. My apologies. <laughs> my apologies. Yeah, I no, guess it's well, probably because it's like Vladimir Putin or something announcing that, hey, I'm president, prime minister. Uh, I mean, every other title in Russia. So it's like doesn't. Yeah, really. Yeah. Kind of what happens. No, here in all we all know he's in charge anyway. So. Right. Right. Yeah. That was definitely no news. Right. <laughs> Do you realize Cal McNair hasn't had a formal press conference since he's taken over his owner? He hasn't answered a single journalist question since Bob McNair died. Hmm. Well, that's true. And you have to wonder. You know, I, I mean this sarcastically, but does that mean that now that Bill O'Brien's the general manager, that he's not going to have press conferences either? Because, you know, most of the Texans GMs, they don't have press conferences. So, you know, he kind of has to that he's the head coach. But, yeah, it, Cal McNair, you know, it, it's kind of he just doesn't feel he, he, I wouldn't call him a fan friendly owner. You know, Bob McNair, at least to some degree, you know, he, he did speak out a, a few things, but. Cal McNair really has been mom since the day he took over the team. And I, I just, I, you know, we can sit here and poke holes in it and disagree, but, you know, Cal McNair just prefers to be behind the scenes and let his coaches and his other people do the talking. Yeah. Ultimately, I mean, Bob McNair's wife, Janice McNair, but of course, Cal McNair is up, uh, is running the team as far as ownership goes, but he's given complete control to Bill O'Brien. I mean, it's his team. It's his organization. He's GM now. He's fired a lot of people, including with that Chris Olson. He's shuffled his co co coaching staff. You know, he's, I mean, Bill O'Brien, this is his organization, that office on Fannin or Kirby or, you know, out of energy. It's just like, it's just his stamp. And so, does any other, maybe outside of Bill Belichick or somebody, have as much control in the NFL? I, I don't know. I just It seems like wh whatever kind of spell he's cast on, on uh, Cal McNair, there are a lot of people that thought that Bill O'Brien should have been fired after this last season, the previous season, and now he just keeps getting contract extensions and more titles. So as as long as ownership uh, and ownership, you know, we know, makes the decisions here and, and it's the, it's the McNair's team. I mean, if that's the way they're going to go, I mean, then Bill O'Brien's going to be here. He's going to be in here. And he's, you know, unless there's some abysmal two and 14 season and it just everything, the wheels come off and the talent that he acquires are complete bust. How do you see him even getting out of here? I mean, he just, it's perfect situation. If you're a coach GM and you have all the control and power in the organization. Well, he won't. And I mean, this is, this just accents it. I mean, you know, this is obviously a big blow to the people that, wanted O'Brien fired after this season. I mean, we knew that wasn't going to happen. I mean, that just that just wasn't realistic. But in the long term, you have to think about how many years would Cal McNair put up with, you know, a six and 10 or, a you know, a two and 14. I, who knows? But it certainly isn't going to happen this offseason. And it probably won't even happen next year, even if the Texans dip it, let's say, eight and eight, seven and nine, something like that. They're probably going to give him one more season to either turn it around or screw it up. So, yeah, for, for those who were wishing for O'Brien's head after that playoff loss, well, we knew it wasn't going to happen, but it's it certainly, it, it, if nothing else, Cal McNair is, is just showing even more confidence in Bill O'Brien considering the moves he made during the preseason, I guess, right before the regular season, and then the fact the Texans did go 10-6. and six. They did win another division title. They did win in the first round of the playoffs, which is something – they've been criticized for not doing in recent years. Hey, well, what, Robbie, I maybe want to ask you, what did you think of Bill O'Brien as GM in his past off season? He basically kind of took over from Brian Gain, even though he's probably influencing Brian Gain there too. What did you kind of think of his overall personnel moves? Oh, he, he, he made good moves personnel wise. It was, you know, his value of draft picks and what needed to be given up as opposed to what he gave up. That was the issue. The clowny, trade uh, you can say that he didn't need to give up what he gave up for duke johnson and i mean it's just just that type of stuff and you guys talked about you know him firing guys he's he's almost become like it's almost become like he's auditioning for the next apprentice he's just firing guys willy-nilly it's like now jj <laughs> moses director of player engagement's gone if you forget who that is moses used to be a punt returner for the texans he's actually been a guest on the podcast yeah. when i visited uh, uh, him out at training camp four years ago. I thought he was just really personable. Nothing but good says, good things to say about, you know, my interactions with him. And unless there's just something really bizarre and under the radar here, I got to say, it, it's like OB is, you know, he's just getting rid of people to get rid of people. It's, all, it's almost if it, he's got that challenge flag, 
and it's burning a hole in his pocket. He's like, I got to use this. I got to use this. Yeah. You know? <laughs> well, and I think there's something else to consider because from what I've read about the Chris Olson situation, I think that caught a, a number of people, including us, Robert, off guard. But from some of the things I've read, and, and I can see this as a pattern with Bill O'Brien, that Chris Olson even fit into the mold of not being a yes man. And I really believe that a lot of what drives Bill O'Brien to make these changes is he wants a yes man or a yes person in there to do what he wants to do. And if you don't agree with him, you're out, no matter who you are. You know, Chris Olson was the one who's negotiating all these contracts. And Robert, you and I have talked about that on previous podcasts. You know, while it, this isn't front and center, it's come out or anything, but just some things I've read, you know, from inside sources, they're saying that there were some things that Chris Olson didn't want to do that Bill O'Brien did. So I, I think we do know that in some cases, Bill O'Brien is the guy. If he says he wants something done and you disagree with him, you better look over your shoulder. You better polish up your resume and get some feelers out. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, he's going to win that tug of war, right? But looking at Bill O'Brien, too, what you're saying there with Chris Olson, if what you're saying is true, Stephen, that, that he only wants yes men, I mean, that's another bad sign for an organization. Because of course truly is. great leadership often wants to have other people's opinions. They want to have other viewpoints bounced off of them. They might even go in that direction. You have to convince them why. But, I mean, that's what you want to have. You don't want just simply, yes, I'm the genius in the room. I want yes people around me. You don't want that, and especially in a sports organization. You want to have you know, somebody who can make that final decision but assimilates a lot of different opinions. And, and, and it has people speaking freely around saying, you know, this is what I think. And, you know, you might butt heads. I mean, it's we heard that with the Astros front office. You know, they brought in some traditional when Nolan Ryan was there, even with the Jeff Luno front office or the traditional scouts, right, with uh, the more analytics focus. And you had probably, you know, a lot of differing opinions there, but eventually you kind of reach a consensus. And I think that that's what organizations have to do. They have to take in the information there, have that, but you, you're going to have differing opinions and then, but you just don't want to have yes people all around you. That's just not healthy. So if that is true, that's not good to hear. I mean, I hope that that's not true and that, you know, it's just basically, uh, you know, decided to part ways for a different reason. Last couple items on the Texans. Uh, we found out this week that Justin Reed played the entire season with a torn labrum. Can't say I'm really surprised about that. Reed did the old fashioned football thing, gutted it out. He had surgery, which hope hopefully hopefully means this isn't something that lingers. But that's a major concern, you know, with with him having labrum issues, and you know that's something that I I. I kind of think that that has the potential to linger. Also, Will, Will Fuller had a sports hernia surgery. So those are two guys that you're relying on as the future young, younger guys in the franchise. But, you know, both of those guys with just uh, some some long term injury concerns. I mean, Will Fuller's like that's that's a no brainer. But but Justin Reed, we got to think about him now, too. That's certainly true. And, and talk about opposites, you know. Justin Reed able to play through the type of injury that he had. Will Fuller, you know, he just barely tweaks his hamstring or his groin, and he's out for an indefinite period. So I think it, it's interesting just looking at the two and how opposite they are as far as the injuries go and how they've responded to them and come back from them. And, you know, Justin Reed just, yeah, yeah, just got it through it the whole season. We need to get to the the story of the of the week. It's uh, of course Kobe Bryant and RG's out in LA, so he's right in the heart of where you know all of the story is, and and basically the heart of of, of Kobe's professional life. And it's just so much freaky coincidence about the timing of Kobe's death. Number one, you got the Grammys at the Staples Center the night that it happens, and I mean that's that was nuts. Uh, number two, the day before on Saturday, you got. A Laker, LeBron James, passing him on the all-time scoring list. Everybody saw Kobe immediately congratulating LeBron. After that, uh, number three, don't forget the mini controversy earlier in the week with LeBron taking a helicopter to see his son, his son, play a basketball game. So that was kind of bizarre uh, timing. And, and this also might go down uh, as the week another NBA legend was born with Zion making his debut. Of course, Zion went to Duke, the college Kobe would have attended if he didn't turn pro. And finally, 
Oh, by the way, David Stern passed away a couple of weeks ago. And remember his last, and RG, I know you remember this one, his last controversial act as commissioner was nixing the Chris Paul deal to the Lakers to play with, of course, number 24, Kobe Bryant. Also had the Rockets uh, connection there, too. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I just want to still extend my condolences to the Bryant family and all of the others who uh, perished in that uh, helicopter tr- crash. I mean, I'm still shocked and devastated by it. Uh, you know, I I remember that that Sunday you got the news. I couldn't believe it. I mean, I told you we texted back and forth. I couldn't believe this. And it's still, I mean, it's it's like one of those things when you know you kind of remember where you were at that when certain people like Michael Jackson or uh, you know for uh, I mean you know just certain big events in a person's life and uh you know just a tragedy that you don't expect a celebrity tragedy that just happens out of the blue and and this was something we all felt especially in in Los Angeles uh, you know I'm a Rockets fan but uh, you know I also see a lot of Lakers games I've watched a lot of Lakers games over the year and, you know, I mean, I always respected uh, Kobe Bryant. I always cheered for Kobe Bryant was, a, you know, as, as far as for what he was achieving in the NBA as a superstar player, uh, you know, and he was great to watch. So, I, I mean, you know, I just feel really sad about the whole thing that happened because, I mean, he was going out for his daughter to go to the Mamba Academy to be around kids. And yes, I mean, I mean, a lot of people are going to talk about getting on the helicopter and those flying conditions and uh, the fog in Los Angeles that morning. But I mean, it's just really sad, everything that happened. And I mean, I've just been looking at people like Jerry West and Shaquille O'Neal and all the NBA legends and how the whole NBA has just kind of come around. And even the community of Los Angeles, it's just, you know, people going and laying flowers down at Staples Center. It's just hard to imagine because Kobe Bryant had so much more to give. He, He was an Oscar winner. Um, you know, for dear basketball. I mean, he had his foibles too. He had his his problems uh, during his life, but it seemed like he was really turning the corner in his life and and really making a lot of positive impacts around the community. Community and people thought he'd be a second Magic, Magic Johnson out here, meaning that his business endeavors would be just as great as his basketball career. And that's why people are so saddened. They feel this loss so much because it's not only you're losing this great basketball player legend in Los Angeles, but you're also losing this, uh, you know, human being who could have made an impact not only in Southern California, but around the globe. Here's the thing that struck me about this tragedy um, is that people who have who don't follow sports, who don't watch basketball, you know, or don't even follow sports in general, even they have been affected. I, I know the day that it happened, I was on my Facebook feed and I can't tell you how many posts I saw from people who didn't even follow sports who were affected by this. You know, that that's the that's when you know that someone has the kind of impact that a Kobe Bryant had is that, yeah, maybe you didn't know him personally. Maybe you didn't follow his NBA career that closely, but you knew his name. I mean, it, it's no different than, say, someone else like a, a Michael Jordan or, or a Tom Brady or. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not wishing anything on anybody. But I'm just trying to draw a comparison. That's how much of an effect that Kobe had. And he's no longer in the league, yet people know who he is, whether he's a sports fan or not a sports fan. And it's just tragic in so many ways because, it, you know, and things are still coming out, of course. And, you know, we're going to hear the fallout of, you know, should they have flown in the fog? Should they have had nine people in a helicopter? Things like that. It's tragic in so many ways, you know, and especially when, you know, not only is a, a father, you know, a husband's and, and people like that lost, but children were involved in this too, not only indirectly by being affected with their family, but who were actually killed in the crash. And it's just, gosh, it's just heartbreaking. I mean, just so, only so many ways you can say, you know, how sad this is. Yeah, I want to go back to the LeBron thing because it's. I just find that interesting that, you know, LeBron and Kobe, there's now this tie between the two of them with LeBron – being the new person with the Lakers that everybody's looking towards. And he, and he just the, the night before he passes him on the all-time scoring list. And it's interesting because LeBron just devastated, but these guys, people forget they weren't always fans of each other. There was a real rivalry. Uh, I don't know if they were like texting buddies back in the mid two thousands. And one of the real frustrations for some NBA fans is we never got to see them match up in a finals. It's unbelievable because between 2007 and 2018, 
Every single NBA Finals had either Kobe or LeBron, but none of them had both of those guys. Uh, and I also want to just, you know, as a Rockets fan, I, I dislike Kobe. I mean, RG, you know, he lives out in LA. He's been out there for a while now, but, you know, dislike, that might be a tampered down term. There's probably another term I would have said back in the day, but beyond the fact that he was a Laker, this was about him trying, for me, it was about him also trying to be a carbon copy of Jordan because if you grew up with Jordan, you didn't like Kobe daring to copy the original. And, and it was, to me, that was just, I was like, yeah, I, I, I want to see somebody that's original. I don't want to see somebody trying to be somebody else. I mean, I, everybody wanted to be like Jordan if you're in the driveway, but at the same time, you know, he would copy his mannerisms, his moves, the, the whole thing. But I will say this about the, the Jordan comparisons, uh, RG, because you mentioned a little bit earlier, the shame of losing Kobe so soon is that, that the post-basketball career, that, that post-basketball career, Kobe was light years more mature, more thoughtful, more interesting than Jordan's. To me, it appeared like he was more charitable. He was more willing to be the available sage and the mentor of his generation, which is surprising because that was the exact opposite Kobe that we saw most of his career. He hated everybody and didn't want to help out a soul. You know, if you went, if you went up to Kobe after a game, you, you'd probably be lucky if he, if he said hello to you, if you were another player. But that was also the intense competitor in him as well, too. I mean, yeah. Michael Jordan was that way. You say men, men, mentor himself after Michael Jordan. Yeah, Michael Jordan was a mentor, and that was the way. M Michael Jordan was competitive as, as all get out, and that's the same way that Kobe oh, yeah. Bryant was. And, you know, I kind of, like, disagree with you a little bit there, but I think a lot of people, they might not have liked Kobe like you disliked, all those but they really respected his game. They knew, oh, my gosh, this guy, he's going to come in, he's going to score, he's going to do this, he will his team to win. So, yeah, everybody around the NBA didn't like him when you were facing him with the Lakers, and they didn't like the Lakers, but, I mean, they respected the fact that this guy would do anything it takes to win. I mean, again, like somebody like James Harden, I mean, you would have loved to have that kind of, like, I mean, the criticism you all make about James Harden, he can't come up in the clutch or he can't when you really need him the most. You've made these things in the postseason. Well, that wasn't Kobe. Kobe was basically killer in the clutch. I mean, he was that was what he was known for. He was known for putting the dagger in the chest. So, I mean, he was just a great bas basketball player, one of the best that we've seen. And for you talk about Jordan, you grew up in that area. I did, too, and everything like that, watching Michael Jordan play and everything. But for a lot of these young NBA players, it was Kobe. That's who they saw. That's who they grew up with. And so that was the guy that they knew. They, you know, heard about Bird, Magic, Jordan, but they didn't really see him. They, they've seen Kobe. They've watched him. That's their guy. So that's why it's affecting so many people. And then to say about his post-basketball career, I agree with you there, too. I mean, it's something that, you know, he was just he, – he really it has been good with players – you know, now that he's out of, uh, you know, the uh, the NBA, he's not competing against him on a daily basis. So, yeah, he is more of a mentor now. I remember when he was a player, though, there was one time I saw that Kobe was always trying to improve his game. I remember and you remember you you put out that clip, Robbie, that said that Akeem Olajuwon was one. He, he thought one of the five greatest influences on him, one of the five, you know, greatest players and influence on him. And, and I remember there was an off season that Kobe worked with Akeem where he just was like trying to learn the dream shake and the move, trying to improve a post game. This is a guy that had already won championship. This was a guy that was already great, but that told you just about his competitive drive. He wanted to learn from the best center, what we consider best center, one of the best centers of all time or the best center of all time with his moves around the post. Kobe wanted those so he'd get another advantage. That's just what his competitive fire was like. And so, I mean – I think that he liked being in that mentor role, kind of what Akeem does now, helping out the younger players. And he wanted to be able to pass on that knowledge to players who were like him, who wanted that drive, that competitiveness, and 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 also want to win championships. You know, so again, it's just kind of that cycle, and it's really sad just to see him pass away. Yeah, I mean, you 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 kind of led me right into this because you know I I had that down as my next note because I was going to tie it into Houston uh, with him you know, having the reverence for Akeem. I mean, that's one thing that kind of got me a little bit on his side. You said he went to uh, Akeem to, to learn off season moves and to get instruction and things like that. He, he might've been, was he the first guy? I, he was at least the first guard that went to dream to get, you know, from another team, from another organization. He was the first guy to say, Hey, Hey dream. Can you help me out? I think he was the first one of, of, of potentially anybody. Probably. There. Yeah. And, and yeah, you said it, you know, I, I posted it up on Twitter. You know, he was asked, to name his top five players of all time. Uh, 
the the humbleness, the humbleness the, that, you know, he didn't put, want to put himself in there and he picked five guys and it was Jordan, Magic, Larry, Jerry West, and, and Akeem Olajuwon. So to have Dream in his top five was was really cool. And, and I want to quote a couple of Rockets players and ex-Rockets players because, you know, with everything that's happened over the last few days, uh, Clint Capella said, quote, not into the debate. Each generation claims their goat. He was ours. Shane Battier said, no one pushed me more. No one. I'm appreciative of our battles. Uh, I'm sad. I will never get the chance to tell you that in person. Kobe, Austin Rivers uh, said, quote, uh, hurting badly, true role model, not just for being a goat or being one of the most competitive athletes to ever compete, not just because you were iconic at every form and defined excellence in so many ways, but because of what a great father you were as well. Of course, we we've seen like girl dad is now kind of thing, something that's trending on social media because uh, that's what uh, Kobe said he was. And then Mario Ellie said, one of the most fierce competitors I've ever faced. When I coached Sacramento, he had a game winner right in front of my face and looked at me and said, I will never forget the gleam in his eye. <laughs> and that, that was Mario T-Mac. I mean, just a, a really tearful. They were extremely close. Uh, he said, I wouldn't have made it through my first two or three seasons without Kobe. Uh, used to lean on him for advice. P.J. Tucker said, uh, it's one of the toughest days of his life. Uh, Kobe meant so much to the game. Some of the simple conversations with him, I'll remember for the rest of my life. He's part of the reason I'm in this place where I am now. And we saw here locally, uh, I mean, Major S- Mayor uh, Sylvester Turner said, uh, you know, some stuff. He also put up uh, the City Hall and Bridges as in purple and gold on Sunday night as a tribute. So, mm. uh, you know, just, just all of that. I mean, the, the outpouring um, just from... Rockets players, and of course, after the after the it happened, and and they were playing the game, you saw, you know, Tyson Chandler and and Rivers, uh, pretty much distraught and in tears, and it, 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 it it's really remarkable. And and we also we can't forget about you know the ex Houston Cougar baseball player, former assistant coach John Altabelli, who was in the helicopter with Kobe. His daughter played basketball with Gianna, and John, his wife and daughter, were among the victims. Uh, some of the Older folks, uh, Stephen, you might remember this. Uh, John's dad, Joe Altabelli, was a ma- major league yep. player and managed the 1983 World Champion Orioles with Cal Ripken, Eddie Murray, and Jim Palmer. That's right. And, and you know, just going back to some of the people that you've quoted, and, and I think it accents what I was going to say, one of the things I think we forget when we talk about, you know, rivals and, you know, competitors against each other there's still a brotherhood that goes on in a league, no matter what sport you're talking about, whether it's NBA, NFL, I, I really think NBA, especially a lot of these players are friends off the court, you know, or they've played together on U S Olympic teams or on all-star teams or, you know, or they're, they're just friends off the court for other reasons. There is a brotherhood. And, and even if, even in the cases where there isn't, even if you don't say really like the player, you do respect them you know, it, it's come out afterwards with Magic Johnson and Larry Bird. You know how bitter rivals they were throughout their playing career. But they did eventually come to respect the other. And I think that's one thing that we tend to forget, especially when tragedies like this happen, is a lot of these players are broken up because even if they didn't interact with Kobe on a regular basis, or maybe not even at all, they were influenced by him in some way, shape, or form, uh, you know, especially when it comes to their game. And whether you like Kobe or not, he was good for the league. He he was a marketer of the league, just like Michael Jordan, just like Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, and so many others before them. There's another part to this story that, you know, I, you've heard a lot over the last few days. I'm sure everybody's listening. And, and you know, it kind of got brushed a little bit under the rug, I felt. And, you know, I, I just I want to bring it up for a couple of reasons. You know, I, I know we like our heroes and villains neat and clean in sports. So I understand why this has happened. But, you know, I I did read back through the details of the 2003 Colorado rape charges. And it's difficult. If you read what Kobe said towards the end, it was a half confession. He said, quote, although I truly believe this encounter between us was consensual, I recognize now that she did not and does not view this incident the same way I did. After months of reviewing the discovery, listening to her attorney and even her testimony in person, I now understand how she feels and that she did not consent to this encounter. And trust me, if you go back and read 
what happened with the police at the scene and the details. They're, they're, they're all out there, of course, with the internet. And I believe this whole thing would have been looked at in a totally different light 15 years later if it had happened then with the Me Too movement. And of course, I get it. It's hard for people to kind of juxtapose this with the person and father Kobe appeared to be over the last few years. But, you know, let's let's be careful of painting him as a saint. And I think Kobe, honestly, would be the first to tell you that. And And really, guys, what I think of when I see what Kobe has talked about as a father and what he's talking about with women is I, I feel like it's kind of been penance for him because it, it was awful what happened yeah. there. And yeah. it didn't go to trial because she, she pulled back. She was victim shamed at that time in a way that would not happen today. You got to remember that Kobe did settle with her and, and, you know, kind of enough was enough. And by all of those standards, you go, yeah, it, it, it looked awful and it was an awful thing. And, and Stephen, I mean, you're, you know, you're a very religious person. And I think we can't judge somebody by their worst moment, but this was a worst moment that was worse than a lot of people's worst moment. But I, I will say that Kobe looked like he was trying to provide penance. And you talk, I mean, it's interesting because it's the female reporters. It's the Rachel Nichols and the Ramona Shelburne's that I've heard from that have said, you know, so many glowing things about what Kobe meant to them personally, him talking about their pregnancies and telling them how strong he thought women were. And I, I just felt like a lot of it was was penance. And it, and it tells us that people can change, too. Well, it certainly does, Robin. And you hinted at something that I posted on my Facebook page the day it happened. Uh, you know, I, I kind of alluded to the fact that we tend to put our, you know, athletes and even sports in general on a pedestal that they can never reach. And we have to remember, you know, these guys are human beings. Kobe Bryant was a human being just like you and me. He just happened to have a gift that was very special and very public. I mean, he played in the National Basketball Association. That's something that most everybody is, is just not able to do. They're not good enough to do it. And I think so many times you know, when, when we watch these guys play, we want to emulate their game. And, you know, we, we look at them as heroes, you know, we have to, we, we do tend to forget. And especially when something like this came out, you know, back in 2003, when this was going on, you know, Kobe was, was very negatively looked upon with this situation, obviously, but we forget that these guys are just people. And, you know, Kobe Bryant died at a very young age, he's mortal, just like you and I are, Robert and RG and everyone else. But I, I think going back to the fact that people can change, they absolutely can if they choose to. And, uh, you know, to say that, you know, first of all, this happened, you know, well before Kobe's daughter was born. So who's to say that, you know, you know, maybe even that situation may have put things in a different perspective for him. Maybe he did change. You know, his wife did stay with him. After the whole thing, he did stay, you know, with her. So there's nothing that says that Kobe couldn't have changed after a situation like this happened. And we just, you know, everybody is going to make mistakes. Now, it's it's how you handle the mistakes. Really, that's the difference is maybe not all of us are going to do something as, as shameful as, as what that was. But we all do make mistakes. And they get, you know, get especially now with social media, you're going to take even more of a hit than they would have back in 2003. And not only did, you know, I mentioned that the whole quote of what he said at that time. And I, really, I mean, guys, if you look at it, that's that's unusual. You know, this is an athlete that basically saying I, I might have screwed up. There was some legality to it. But to get that close to the line and to to, to come out with an apology, other athletes could could probably learn fr from him doing this. Of course, I'm sure he paid her a lot of money, but I also want to remind everybody that she came from a wealthy family. This was not about the money and she put herself out there against a powerful athlete. And so you, you, you have a feeling that that had to have been an extremely difficult decision for her and something that she felt needed to be done. But you do have to give him credit because he was somebody that could have just, uh, he could have just, I'll make it go away and I'm not going to say anything or whatever. And, and maybe this might've been a lawyer written thing, but you know, you still have to have the wherewithal to think that I, I need to say this no, no matter what anybody else says. And I need to do this no matter what anybody else does. And then to follow it up with how he's, you know, been an advocate for, for women and, you know, what he's done as a father and how 
loving he obviously was as a father. And uh, apparently he was with, with all the women, even the journalist, you know, which is not always something you see from NBA players. Well, that's certainly true. And not only that, I mean, when you see women reporters, you know, praising him, then it's, then it's something to take a look at. And of course, yeah, if, it, if this had happened a couple of years ago, uh, we might be talking about it in a, in a very different way. But the fact remains is that he did seem, at, le at least from a public standpoint, it did, he did seem to kind of take a step back and, and kind of change the perspective of what happened and how it happened. And it's a lesson also, I think, in this kind of cancel culture that we are where somebody screws up and you wave them goodbye and you say their life is over with that, you know, there's redeemability there. You know, that's, I, that's the big lesson that I think if you look at Kobe's life, you know, he's somebody that, that showed that redeemability was possible, re being able to be a changed person. And so I, I think that's something that we can take as well. Any last words on Kobe or anything in Houston sports before we take off? It's funny how we talked about, you know, things were, kind of dead at Houston sports and nothing much was going on, but you know, there's always something to point to. And uh, we just continue to prayers for Kobe's family and just the fallout from all of this, you know, this, uh, this is a story that isn't going to go away anytime soon. And as far as Houston sports goes, let's get the Rockets to play more consistently. And uh, well, you know, spring training is just around the corner. It's going to be a weird spring training and a weird season for the Astros just because of all this situation. Yeah, I think with the Astros coming up too, it's uh, kind of important to, to see they're going to hire a manager here, but then they're also going to do their GM search. We didn't even really talk about that very much. I mean, they've looked at a couple of candidates. More names will be coming out, but just, uh, I mean, they're making two huge decisions for the franchise here. And, and once again, yeah, prayers to the, the Bryant family, the Altabella family, and everybody else who lost their lives. And let's uh, light, lighten the mood a little bit and close the show with Jimmy Kimmel talking to James Harden about number 24, Kobe Bryant. Well, Kobe Bryant said on this very show, I asked him if there was one guy he'd want, who would it be? And he said it was you. And you were a Lakers fan as a kid. Yeah. I mean, I mean com coming from Kobe, man, that's an honor. You know, I just go out there and try to compete at a high level. I mean, every night, but just coming from him, uh, one of the best to ever do it. I mean, it means a lot to me. Did you get excited when you heard he said that? Had he ever said it to you personally? I mean, we have talks. You know, we're really yeah. good friends. So, I mean, he's never really told me that in person. What was it like the first time you played against him? Because I know he's your favorite player. And what does that feel like to play against your... I was nervous in the beginning. And yeah. then uh, once the ball, you know, he had the ball and I was guarding him, I had to try to stop him. I mean, I had no other choice. You, <laughs> you guys played in a kind of pickup game. Yeah. It's called, what is it called? The Drew, Drew League? League, yeah, yeah. here. And it's here in town. Mm -hmm. And this was during the NBA lockout or something? The lockout. Yeah. It was summertime and... You know, it's, it's like a Washington Park, and, you know, it was just a pack. It was a pack, you know, a little small gym. Kids play there, right? Kids play there. Yeah. And, you know, he came out. I had 50 points, though. <laughs> How many did he have? Um, I think he had, like, 40. But he hit the game winner. Only. He hit the game winner. Of course he does. That's what he does. He, he, uh, is he in, the most competitive guy you played against? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Really? I think he shows him. I think he shows him on the court as well. I mean, just by his demeanor. Are you um, glad he's not? You don't have to play against him. Oh, anymore? I think we all miss him, man. He's 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 a legend. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Don't forget to follow Houston Sports Talk on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, the Google Podcast app, or the Stitcher app. You can support us by giving us a five-star review on iTunes or by telling your friends about us. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>